Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. Today, we will be talking about Trump's recent executive order that bans citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States for 90 days. It also bans the admission of all refugees for 120 days, regardless of the country of origin. As a result of this order, hundreds of people have already been detained for hours at airports, causing massive protests at airports in the United States. The day after the order was signed, a federal judge in New York put a hold on the deportation of people stranded in U.S. airports, and uncertainty still remains regarding the future implementation and legality of this order. On today's episode, we are joined by our regular CGHR panelists Max Curtis and Matt Mahmoudi, as well as two special guests, Ben Garagosli and Sarer Mohammed. Before coming to Cambridge, Ben Garagosli practiced as a full-time lawyer for nearly six years in the United States. He practiced many different areas of litigation, including deportation defense and general immigration law, and he has also successfully argued before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Sarer Mohammed is an MPhil International Relations and Politics student at the University of Cambridge, researching transitional justice, critical theory, and the Horn of Africa. Her family migrated to Canada as refugees from the Civil War in Somalia, and she is a dual citizen of Canada and Somalia. So how does this executive order from President Trump change America's previous immigration policy regarding refugees? So first of all, it suspended the entire U.S. refugee admission system for 120 days. So regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're from these seven countries or not, you cannot come to the U.S. as a refugee anymore. That's one. It has then suspended the Syrian refugee program indefinitely. So we don't know when that's going to the time when that's going to be up. Third, it's banned entry from seven majority Muslim countries, and those countries are Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen for 90 days. It's also temporarily banned entry of dual nationals who are from those seven countries, but have an additional passport for 90 days following the signing of the order. So let me just talk a little bit about that more, because I think there's Mm -hmm. some confusion on that. So let's say... Yeah, I'm confused. Can I go to America? (laughs) Well... uh, Under the order, no, but under a subsequent uh, temporary order that was issued by a federal judge in Los Angeles, yes. And let me break that down. So the executive order says that, let's say you have citizenship in Somalia and you have citizenship in Canada, for example. Under the order, at least, you can't go to the U.S. and say, my Canadian passport is controlling. They'll say, no, it's not. Your Somalian passport is controlling. Does that mean like... What is control? That's the one that applies for purposes of this order. Okay. So having a nationality apart from the U.S., of course, this order thankfully does not apply to U.S. citizens. So if you're a citizen of one of the seven countries and a citizen of a country apart from the United States, this order would ban you from entering the U.S. Okay. So if Sarah was like a U.S. Somali citizen, she'd be fine. But because she's a Canadian Somali citizen under the order alone... Sorer is banned from that the is United correct. States. Okay. That is correct. For the next however many days. Yeah. What, 90 days. Apparently. 90 days. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it also prioritizes refugee claims on the basis of religious persecution. And this is probably one of the biggest problems this order has. It basically prioritizes Christians over Muslims. Now, the order doesn't say prioritize Christians over Muslims. They were a little bit smarter than that, but not by much. So Section B says 
Under the resumption of U.S. RAP admissions, the Secretary of State, in consultation with the Secretary of Homeland Security, is further directed to make changes to the extent permitted by law to prioritize refugee claims made by individuals on the basis of religious-based persecution, provided that the religion of the individual is a minority religion in the individual's country of nationality. So you don't have to read between the lines mm. too deeply to figure out that this order is trying to exclude Muslims even after the 90 days is up. So if you take these seven countries, the minority religion there, among others, mm -hmm is Christianity. And Rudy Giuliani already admitted that, oh, Trump came to me and asked, how do I do this Muslim ban legally? <laughs> so we already know what the intention, like one of the actors has admitted the intentions behind this. So we know that, but it also bans like all refugees, like from everywhere. Do you think the, the language of calling this just a Muslim ban is helpful? So you're asking the lawyer a question and you're obviously not gonna get a straight answer. Um, and by the way, before I go on, I, I need to remind everyone that I am a lawyer. I am licensed to practice law in California, but this is for informational purposes only. And as the situation continues to change, this is not intended to be legal advice, but for informational purposes only. So if you have a situation that's applying to you directly or affecting you or your family directly, I strongly suggest you seek an attorney that's licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Having said that, and having given the disclaimer... Um, <laughs> Um, now, calling it a Muslim ban has advantages because because a lot of people who are defending it are saying, well, we're not targeting all Muslim majority countries. We're just targeting these seven ones because these are particularly problematic. First of all, that's wrong. OK, for the purposes of this order, that's just incorrect. And it cuts through what's really going on. And pursuant to the case law, an executive order that displays unconstitutional animus, such as this one, can either be covert or overt. Mm. So obviously, if he says no more Muslims coming to the U.S., he'd have huge problems on the face of it. But mm. he's gone a little bit covert in this and said, well, we're actually going to identify these countries. And pursuant to case law in the U.S. on these issues, even if it's covert, even if it's implicit, the order cannot stand. Mm -hmm. And I imagine the admission of some actors in the Trump administration will make it all the more easy to challenge legally in court that this is yes because, so, so it's not even it's not even that covert right so in, I mean, in, in that, that sense the problem um, is the problem for Trump and his administration is that they can use those statements made on the campaign trail when he declared that he wants to have a ban on Muslims mm -hmm. coming into the country obviously before he consulted his advisors yes. um, yeah and also Rudy Giuliani's statements are also admissible now if you look at the citizens of which countries have committed terrorist acts on American soil that have harmed Americans, none of the citizens from these seven countries have done that. The country whose citizens have killed the most Americans by way of terror on American soil is Saudi Arabia. They Other than American citizens. Yeah. In terms of like terrorist acts on American soil, actually, it's like white American male Christians who are the number one offender um, rather than any kind of refugee from anywhere. Um, but Sarah, I want to bring you in. You know, so this order has clearly impacted real people, people's lives in ways that, you know, are, are quite scary and also quite uncertain. Can, can you talk a little bit about your situation and, and how you felt and some of the thoughts that you went through when this order first came out? Sure. Okay, so I'll start by prefacing this with a little bit of a, not a disclaimer, not a legal disclaimer like the one we got before, but I will I will acknowledge the position that I do have. I have the Canadian government in my 
in my corner. And so effectively, I have not just a place of safety and a place of refuge and the ability to conduct my affairs, regardless of what happens here. I have a, a basically a state that is willing to advocate on my behalf. And I also don't have any connections to the United States. I don't study there. That that would oblige me to have to return but you do have family i do have so the situation is i'm a somali canadian okay and so the the question that i was asking before um not so discreetly was whether i am able to go to the united Mm -hmm. states at all there's been quite a bit of um incompetence in the way that this order has been carried out although it has always been a case that there's quite a bit of discretion as to who enters the country and how, um, at least before now, you could basically be certain that as a Canadian citizen, you could pretty much enter the United Mm -hmm, States. mm -hmm. So I I suppose for myself, uh, especially as someone who lives like in close proximity to the U.S. border and crosses it quite often Mm -hmm. because I have family on the other side of the border, it emphasizes for me that should something happen, could it be a celebration, a wedding, a, a conference, something of interest or something a little scarier, something related to family affairs, something that someone might get sick, something might happen. The ease of access that I used to be able to rely on in order to be able to like just access family members on the other side, it's not the case anymore. Um, well, at least the certainty isn't there. Um, I think it just kind of emphasizes what a lot of people, especially in the Muslim community, have been feeling ever since 9-11, this feeling of isolation, Perhaps mm-hmm. a feeling of being singled out, a feeling of um, having to constantly... You're targeting. Your like, yeah, this is... Yeah. I mean, we exactly. they, they've openly admitted it. They've been very open in their language. About your community is-, is being directly targeted sure. for reasons that seem to have more to do with just bigotry that, that not seem that do have more reasons <laughs> to do with bigotry than national security sure and um, then like i i have uh, extended friends um and within my network itself friends who are inside the united states who are afraid to leave because they don't know if their student visa will be accepted on their way back in people who are actually outside doing field work at the moment not sure if they can come back and that's just a function of the fact that i have student friends right Mm -hmm. so i have friends who are doing their phds or in law school but like what we really have to be concerned about here is like people who have passed through the vetting process as refugees and who now have no access to the united Mm -hmm. states no access to effectively the the, the questions that they were posed. Yeah, some some people were like who are legally clear, literally on planes on their way to the U.S. They who have are their now boarding pass and their visa mm-hmm. in, stamped in their passport. They've passed the health screening, and that's not an easy process. That is not an easy process. It's an absurdly complicated yeah. process. You you are also potentially impacted by this, Matt. Yeah, so I'm in a situation where I have been through a vetting process to get access to a visa, which I would not otherwise have access to because. Because even prior to this order, Obama put through uh, a sort of uh, visa reform act, uh, which meant that people of dual citizenship or people who had visited countries, including Iran after 2011, couldn't go to America on an ESTA. Uh, An ESTA would require you to sort of just notify the government 72 hours before you'd pay roughly 17 GB pounds and you'd be ready to go. But people like myself would have to apply for a non-immigrant visa, like a, a business visa or a tourist visa, what have you. And you go to an interview, you are vetted, and if you're lucky, you end up with a 10-year visa. And I've been through that, and I do have a 10-year visa. And you're, um, what can you tell I'm your Iranian, citizenship? Yeah. And, I'm, I'm Iranian-Danish, so 
So yeah. I'm both I'm both Danish citizen and, and an Iranian citizen. And I wonder what will my situation be in two weeks time when I'm at Gatwick Airport ready to fly off to Baltimore and um, whether I'll be allowed in or not, because I don't feel like that's been clearly communicated. And also, I feel like, again, like I've been vetted. Right. So it's not even it's not even a question of me applying for a visa and then not being you know, allowed in. This is a totally different circumstance. Max, do you want to jump in with a point? Yeah, well, I think one key thing I think is Ben was just talking about, obviously, how this is probably in all likelihood not going to stand 100%. You know, quite a lot of aspects of this are not going to be considered legal by the end of the process. One interesting thing is that by all accounts, it looks like before the Muslim ban came into effect, before Trump signed the executive order, he didn't consult with the Department of Justice and he didn't consult with the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House, although they've kind of pushed back on that. And what's interesting then is the Department of Homeland Security, you know, they got forwarded this like, you know, check this out. Department of Homeland Security said, you have a lot of powers as president to be able to do a lot of this, but you can't really ban green card holders. And what's interesting is that Bannon and Stephen Miller, two of the key people in Trump's administration who are rapidly becoming the central figures in an administration, overruled them and said, essentially, doesn't matter. We're going to go through this anyway. Mm -hmm. What are the ideologies that are playing into this? What is the background? And who are the key figures that we're talking about here? Because it's obviously not just Trump. The White House is a very multifaceted organization here. Right. So just to start from a broad perspective, I think the general sort of intellectual development uh, developments that we've seen that that's led into this are sort of the way that we think about migration generally. And I think it's important to talk about how previously there was sort of a migration and development nexus. We looked at migrants in terms of whether they were contributing economically and whether they perhaps could be also agents of development back in their countries of origin. We've since moved past that. So now we've moved into an era of the migration and security nexus. So the question is now, by stopping migrants from coming in or by letting them come in, how are our borders affected and are we jeopardizing our own security? We're not so much worried about the migrant security. So we've moved from the development aspect and from economic concerns, mainly because they were debunked, um, into security sort of paradigm. And then there's a third paradigm which we haven't moved into and which I think is really important for the you know, just based on the fact that we're a human rights podcast as well, which is immigration and the rights nexus. Why do we not care as much about the migrant as an individual? Why are we homogenizing migrants and refugees as sort of this force that's going to either strain our economy or strain our security, right? So that's just a larger debate. Yeah. I just wanted to speak a little bit more about that second nexus that you you proposed there, the migration and security nexus. And I absolutely agree with you that that's definitely the framing of um, not just the order, but the way that it's been talked about, um, especially because a lot of the defenses that you'll see, or at least the challenges, are about the number of terrorist attacks that have been committed by nationals of those countries or citizens of those countries. So how much is this actually nestled within a global war on terror logic that mm -hmm. is pre-existing in, in the sense that these seven countries have been subjected to uh, extra visa uh, precautions for quite a while? Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, how much is this like, although um, I, I think the, the overtness of it is obviously 
uh, distinct. And what what might be distinct about it is the, the manner in which it's overtly couched as, uh, mm-hmm. in a history of basically the same man saying that he was interested in banning Muslims, right? So yeah, we, we, yeah. we can tie it mm-hmm. and attach it to that particular history. But I don't want to lose sight of the overall history that, that starts basically that in it was 01, on. yeah. 03, that this is nestled within a, 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 a global war on terror logic that, that links migrants as security threats, that mm-hmm. embodies threats in the flow of borders, yeah. in, in the flow of people through borders. So like, it's important to, to keep that in mind so that way we're not... I, I, not that I, I don't have a problem with overly demonizing Donald Trump yeah. myself. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But I, I do... I, I, what I don't want to lose sight of is the way that this is part of a... Uh, a progressive discursive change, mm-hmm. I would say. You know, I think that's really important to note because obviously how politicians talk about um, not just refugees, but immigrants as a whole and linking that to terrorism, as you pointed out, Sarer, that is a, what is it, a cost-benefit analysis. There's been some studies from the Cato Institute that Americans have a 1 in 3.64 billion chance of being killed by a refugee. Uh, similar studies show that the chances of you being, of an American being killed by a terrorist attack are incredibly small. There's a ton of other things, namely gun violence by other American citizens and that are much more likely to kill you. And yet most of our rhetoric, most of the rhetoric that you hear in campaigns when we talk about national security focuses terrorism, I'd say is probably number one. And the number two is immigration. Um, And that's been like that, as you pointed out, since the 2000s. Um, But that doesn't make sense from like just like a cost benefit analysis of trying to fund the programs and put the most money towards the most severe risks. But then politically, of course, because we have these programs, they're successful. And that's why we have such low threat levels, which is, you know, that may not be true, but like that, it's a, that's, it sounds good, you know, to say that, which makes it really hard to argue against these things. Essentially, the terrorist threat, you know, there are some serious threats, but they're outsized compared to the amount of attention that they get and the amount, the, the degree of response Absolutely. they get. That, yeah, that's a succinct way of saying I think what's interesting as well is, Sarah was just saying, you know, this is an, an extension of the politics of 2001 and 2003. I think there are some key ways in which that's true. For instance, ISIS has said that this Muslim ban for them in terms of propaganda value, is essentially the same as the Iraq war. The entire Iraq war for them is as valuable as this Muslim ban. I think that's something we need to keep in mind. And also the fact that this ban is not actually entirely popular in America. I think that's something for political context we need to look at. So Gallup came out with a poll yesterday that showed that in terms of the the ban on the seven Muslim countries, 55% of Americans disapprove. In terms of indefinitely suspending the refugee program, 58% disapprove. There are other polls that show, you know, greater or lesser disapproval or approval. But the point stands that this is not a universally loved measure. In light of the statistics that you guys have brought forward about how unlikely it is to be killed in America by a terrorist attack, I think actions like this, they're not only failing to combat terrorism, Mm -hmm. but they're actually complementing terrorism. The idea, because these Mm -hmm. actions are causing so much chaos, and the whole point of terrorism is to use fear to influence... It plays into it, yeah. and. Trump, by doing this, has essentially caused more chaos and more terror among the people. Well, he fulfills what ISIS has been saying about America and groups like ISIS that, oh, America hates Muslims. We need to destroy America. It's like two sides of the same coin, really. The terrorist acts will fuel Trump's rhetoric and policies and not just Trump's, but policies like this in general from the right. If you're moving towards a sense of like, 
discriminating towards Muslims than when terrorist groups like ISIS say, yeah, Americans discriminate against Muslims, then it becomes true. This makes us all just globally less safe. Yeah, Tr Trump is no stranger to the politics mm -hmm. of fear. One of the things that happened recently is the fact that um, Kellyanne Conway, Trump's one of his main advisors, went on TV and she talked about how this is very similar, according to her, to the 2011 ban that Obama had. Obviously, as Ben has said, this is a very different situation between Obama's 2011 quote-unquote ban and Trump's new one. But the thing is, she talked about how this that Obama's ban was in response to what she called the Bowling Green Massacre. And she talked about this with incredibly effusive language. The problem is that the Bowling Green Massacre doesn't exist. They just completely made this up in order to instill that politics of fear deeply into America to try and justify a thing that's basically going to cause terror to, you know, thousands of refugees and even more thousands of immigrants into America. Was that an alt fact? Was, like, what was happening? I think that came from, so I saw something about this. Did that come from like, so as Sorer hinted at before, you know, what are the precedents that have kind of set the stage for Trump's actions? And while I do believe there are important historical precedents for this, basically some of what's being said about the comparison between what Obama has done by creating that list of the seven countries and by creating a temporary, what's being called a ban, but which is actually not a ban on Iraqi refugees. What he did was in response to the incident that you brought up after they caught the two I don't know if they were refugees or not, but there were people from Iraq who were planning to commit some sort or who had been linked to terrorist acts. And so refugee applications from Iraq were slowed. But in every month after that slowing happened, they were trying to sync the military's fingerprint database with the State Department's and add an extra level of vetting for Iraqi immigrants coming to the United States. So that's why it slowed down. But by slow, it was not a ban. And every month after that happened, there were Iraqis coming to the US. So there was never like, there was never a ban and it only applied to like a select, it was targeted. And this has been just sloppily implemented. There was really little consultation from anyone. In terms of one ideology, we asked like, what ideologies is Trump operating from and doing it? I mean, part of it's clearly his Muslim ban promises, but another part of it is just the way he does things. That's a very scary way for the president to act and for a president to operate in a way that is essentially very authoritarian is quite scary. So, Ben, you talked a little bit about how after the 90 days or 120 days, there will be some provisions for refugees once more. Now, I wonder a lot of the people from those countries um, who uh, do uh, flee are typically subject to political persecution as well. Let me start off by saying that this immigration ban, it isolates the United States because it is breaking international laws. For example, um, the United Nations Refugee Convention requires the U.S. to provide protection and safe haven to those facing persecution. Yes, I believe Angela Merkel had to explain what the Geneva Conventions were. To Donald Trump <laughs> and why this violated the Geneva Conventions. Awkward. I wish I was joking, but yeah, this is this is, this is the news. Okay, <laughs> and it continue. Yeah. So Matt, to answer your question, we have no idea what's going to happen. This order not only is unconstitutional, not only is in violation of statutory law, it's also poorly written. So I mean, 
the Trump administration is apparently trying to do something racist and can't even do that correctly. Um, so that, that, that's the scary thing, right? I yeah. mean, people, people who say that you can't be both stupid and evil at the same time, well, read the order and look at what happened afterwards. Well, and you could argue that what's scarier than bigotry is incompetent bigotry. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty good argument to make. Yeah. Um, but I also want to address that this is not a sudden hiccup in the immigration process. Uh, having seen how immigration law works to a significant degree, I can say that our immigration process is greatly broken. And that, that comes from both people who are left-leaning and right-leaning. In my own experience, for example, I can tell you that even immigration judges who take the bench, and you'd think that these are going to be these legal scholars who can probably recite the entire Immigration Nationality Act by heart. No, a lot of them don't even have immigration experience before they take the bench. And you don't have to be a complex analytical thinker to understand why that's a problem. But that's what's going on. And as a result of their inexperience, they make quite a lot of mistakes. There are plenty of stories that I could tell. And even the ones who do have immigration experience are not always the most reputable. A lot of times these positions are given away uh, for as political favors. And I'm not going to name any names, but needless to say, I have come across many immigration judges who either as a result of inexperience or incompetence made very, very drastic decisions that affected people in very negative ways. And sometimes those immigrants were in a position to appeal those orders, and sometimes they were not. And that's very, very sad, especially since in the United States, you are not entitled to an attorney at the government's expense like you are in the criminal system. There's no public defender for immigrants in the United States. So that poses a whole host of other problems. Uh, Sir, I don't know about you, but a lot of my Danish-Iranian friends who are already challenged in their claim to Danishness are taking to social media to express their dissatisfaction with how they feel less Danish by the virtue of this order. Sure. So my brown Danish passport is not worth as much as a white Danish passport, and I wonder what your reaction is to that. I've absolutely had similar conversations with my friends, both online and off, concerning that exact issue. I think it unsettles a question of our our relative position in the quote-unquote West and where we specifically belong here. Like, there have been quite a few conversations that uh, I know uh, Muslims of all stripes have been having for quite a long time about what what function we really play, what place we really have in, in my case, the Canadian National Project. For all of the language of this triumphalist narrative of, like, a multicultural country that brings every corner of the globe together, you still experience systemic discrimination. And so this kind of reiterates that sense of unease in Malaise, I think. Even if it isn't within your own country, it kind of reminds you about a, a question of where we belong, you know what I mean, and, and what, what it means to belong. Um, and I think that myself personally, speaking as a Somali Canadian, it's always been a question. We always had that millennial question of where do I belong here and that mm -hmm. angst that's always like I'm, I'm half this I'm half that am I both am I neither what which contaminates the other there's a question of like constructing a process of belonging yourself and then mm -hmm. it might open opportunities for people to start criticizing that project altogether mm -hmm. so that might be an interesting starting point <laughs> Especially because it institutionalizes like that you are different again by by the virtue of being a Canadian Somalian like you have 
less access to different countries, you know, like, for example, in terms of America, much sure. like I would have, you know, more of a problem going into, in America, into America than like my friend, you know, what should we call him that's really stereotypically Danish, uh, Carl Anderson. <laughs> so yeah. it, it comes to this question about the ideal citizen, the ideal type citizen. This is a question of Carl Anderson in your case or Biff in mine. <laughs> that's the name I like to like to call the average Canadian. Um, you know, Joe, Joe might not have the same issues, but Joe, Joe fits a standard of what, what you might conceptualize in your head as an ideal type citizen. What this comes back to is the question of anxiety, and especially in the United States. We've experienced this similarly uh, in the UK as it pertains to uh, Brexit. There's this understanding that this ideal type citizen is under stress. That this, this person who is a member of the white working class, quote unquote, it has been experiencing the, uh, the, the difficulties associated with globalization, has had all of these economic issues as a result of that, is having what might be termed a white lash in order mm-hmm. to assert their position relative to others in the internal state hierarchy, right? And so this, then we get to this question of what does it mean to, to scapegoat? What does it mean to, what performance is Trump doing for his American public? Who is this meant to inspire confidence in? How is he building the, the identity of what it means to be an American through the process of exclusion? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's one facet that we have to look at this from, not just a moral travesty and not just obviously a real question of life and death for the refugees, but what, what comes from the ashes of this? How exactly does Americanness become defined here? who's on the inside and who's on the out. And I can tell you that although like Somali Americans, for example, might not be covered by the ban, they're considering their their relative position here. They're considering what it means to be a part of this national project mm-hmm. um, that has always at least made an overt rhetorical attempt to include them, you know, mm-hmm. has always, at least until now, you could you could rely on the the principle of non-discrimination at mm-hmm. least you know well that's the thing where i think this is out of line completely with the best of american history in terms of inclusion but i do fear that it's very much in line with the worst of american history and like you pointed out before and this is yeah. this is very different from how and the, the the question i was bringing up before about continuity and change what the, the, what i will say is distinct here is like especially when we're talking about issues of social justice we often point to the the assumed or the unaddressed or the unarticulated as a source of bias that will impact how equally applicated law or equally applicated institutions will result in disproportionate disadvantage for a particular group in this case we're not talking about that anymore mm-hmm. we're not talking about like like the difference between de facto and de jour discrimination, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. that's we've kind of passed that and that question. And the scary thing is, as you mentioned, we are passing in a way that's very much a performance. And the idea of this performance is in line with how Donald Trump, who was literally a reality TV star, it's very much in line with how he's always done things and how he's made a name for himself. And now it's so scary because now this is not just reality TV. And what is the America that is going to be put first here? The yeah. America in America first. What is his vision of America? Who does it include? Who doesn't it? And I think that's going to be the 
the guiding lodestone of where we see this going in the future. Because although this is going to expire in a couple months, apparently, we, we can kind of anticipate that the temporary nature of this until we figure out what is going on is, is likely going to last a little bit longer. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations. <laughs>